This is the Hindu on Books, a weekly podcast from India's national newspaper on the latest and the best from the world of literature. Hello and welcome to the Hindus in Books podcast and I'm your host Kalwal Bhattacharjee. The world recently held its breath as Japan proceeded with the Olympic Games under the shadow of the deadly COVID-19 pandemic. But despite the fear of the pandemic, Japan successfully pulled off the Olympics that led to much cheer in the medal-winning countries. That Japan could hold the Olympic Games despite the worldwide fear is a testament of the special something about Japan. Indeed, from Indo-Pacific strategic affairs to global industrial production to public life and sustainable development, Japan is a story like no other. To talk about this fascinating country and its many dimensions, we have with us today international affairs journalist Pallavi Ayer and author of a marvelous new book on foreigner discovering Japan titled Orienting, an Indian in Japan. Welcome to the podcast, Pallavi. Thank you so much. First of all, congratulations on this brilliantly written book that uh, can stay on the shelves for a very long time. It's indeed should be titled as uh, Discovery of Japan because you have written it almost like a journey where you have discovered the country for yourself as well as for your readers. And also a, a special you know, congratulations for you for the unique style of writing that you that you are known for. I would like to begin by asking you, Pallavi, what prompted you to write this book? What prompted me to write this book? So, you know, I mean, I have been writing books for the last 15 odd years. And uh, what prompted me really was the fact that I ended up living in many different countries. I have worked to begin with as the foreign correspondent for the Hindu in China for many years at the start of this millennium. And then as things uh, turned out, um, I ended up marrying a diplomat husband, which took me to far-flung corners of the earth from Belgium in Europe to Indonesia uh, and then most recently to Japan. Um, Throughout this time, I have been working as a reporter, as a journalist, as the rare Indian foreign correspondent out there covering the world from an Indian perspective, really. And um, I felt uh, at the end of each of these episodes in my life that there was a lot that was interesting about these countries. There was a lot that was there to discover about these countries, but that um, sort of remained opaque to Indians because most of what we consumed about the rest of the world was from um, the sort of particular lens of the West. So um, I felt that um, it would be interesting to kind of uh, explore my own personal experiences by blending together what I call the three A's of autobiography, analysis, and anecdote to present different parts of the world, particularly in Asia, um, to an Indian audience, um, trying to highlight those aspects um, that would be of particular interest to an Indian audience, but that are often ignored um, in the writings of authors from other countries. In your book, you have uh, stated that Japan has turned nature, quote-unquote nature, and its connection with nature as a kind of self-assertion, which helps in its in creating its national identity. This is very significant because from the post-colonial point of view, uh, we have always wondered that how could Japan emulate the West and yet appear 
to be so unique and distinct and yet so powerful and influential in the, in the world affairs. Um, and you have gone into this unique relationship that the Japanese people and society have with their specific nature. Um, can you please elaborate on this very nuance to take on Japanese identity? Absolutely, Kalol. I think it's very interesting because, you know, in many ways, Japan is an outlier in Asia. Um, it is not only uh, geographically on the edge of the country, but it was, unlike other countries in Asia, a colonizer rather than a colonized country. And as a result, it had to turn to different sources for deriving its modern identity. Because for for countries that were former colonies like India, like Indonesia, to a lesser extent China, um, in the sort of post-colonial modern period, um, you know, the kind of humiliation that was suffered at the hand of foreign powers became in many ways the inspiration for their current sense of national identity. This was not readily available to Japan, which had a much more complex relationship with its history and with its own past. So in many ways, I think there was a casting about for more benign um, sources of inspiration for what could what Japanese people could hold to be uh, truly uniquely Japanese that made the Japanese the Japanese and not somebody else. Um, and I think um, that it led to a genre of writing, which I also examine in my book called Nihon Jinron. And Nihon Jinron was essentially a, a, a series of um, analyses that were written by Japanese experts themselves, heavily influenced by a sort of Orientalist reading of Japan, which romanticized it and aestheticized it and made people believe that the Japanese were somehow um, unique uh, in terms of how they thought. The more extreme versions of this even have people claiming that the Japanese brain is differently um, configured to the rest of the world's brains because it's more left brain rather than right brain with the result that it hears the chirping of insects for example in a more emotional way than other people. Now a lot of this is just blatant self-orientalizing but the fact is that a kind of special connection with nature which might have its origins in kind of 19th century European orientalizing of Japan but it has been kind of self uh, taken by Japanese writers themselves to become the basis for its current um, 21st century identity. And, um, you know, all um, uh, of these senses of what makes us a nation, what is the basis of national identity is constructed to some extent. That does not mean that it doesn't feel real or become real. So when I say that it was constructed, I don't mean that most average Japanese people do not actually believe this and in a kind of communal belief, make it real. And uh, so as a result, you know, you'll see that nature and the seasons in particular have a real everyday palpable presence in daily life, much more so than in most other countries. Um, uh, the passing 
of the year is divided up into many different uh, moments. For example, you have the blooming of the sakura, the cherry blossom, followed by the blooming of the wisteria, followed by the blooming of the azaleas, followed by the coming of the cicadas in the summer. And all of this has a great resonance in everyday life. People will change the kimonos or the clothes that they wear to display the different motifs which are in tune with the seasons. The basis for Japanese culture, the main sort of philosophical, cultural, aesthetic element in Japanese culture is the tea ceremony. And the tea ceremony is again finely attuned to the changing of the seasons. The utensils that you use for the tea ceremony change according to the seasons. The clothes you wear to attend the uh, tea ceremony will also change accordingly, as will the conversation. Um, the kinds of foods that are available in restaurants change. The flower decorations change. So you really see this very strong casting about uh, uh, for finding a sense of unique Japaneseness in this ostensible relationship that the Japanese have created with their seasons and with nature. Um, I would. Um you know continue with this uh, the understanding of japanese culture and uh, and uh, japanese um, society um, and you have referred to this unique experience of seeing this little boy um, carrying a big bag on his uh, you know his school bag and uh, wandering on the streets of tokyo and then getting on to the metro and you are obviously quite scared to see this tiny tiny child you know uh, all alone in this busy metropolis and yet he was absolutely confident about what he was doing um i would ask you what exactly what exactly goes on in in the japanese society to create this sort of this sort of you know uh, order and confidence and security where a child um, can board a metro in a, you know in a busy city uh, and it's just a normal affair for them. Yes, that's an excellent question, Kalol. And as an outsider, as a, you know, the first sort of impressionistic uh, experience that you have in Japan, I think the one of really young, tiny, five, six, seven-year-olds um, expertly traveling across this huge uh, megalopolis that is Tokyo, a city of 30 million people, on their own, without any guardians uh, or chaperones, taking the metro, taking public transport is a, almost like a supernatural experience for somebody who comes from a city like Delhi, or in my case, I had moved from Jakarta, where we are so used to, uh, you know, concerns of safety, even with adult women not being able to step out without uh, telling their friends and family about where they are on WhatsApp and having people kind of following them on GPS. So the idea that you can have these tiny little children navigating this huge modern city on its own was quite flabbergasting. And as I mentioned in the book, the first few times I saw it, I assumed that the children in question had got lost. And I actually tried following them to offer my help, uh, only to discover that they were just going about their business on the way to or on the way back from school. And I was really blown away by this because what, what it essentially means is that in Japan, we see village level level um, trust um, and um, in sort of public behavior, in civic consciousness, yeah, just the amount of trust that people have in each other um, is one thing that you would normally see in a face-to-face -face context like a small village, not in a huge city 
of 30 million people. But in Japan, we have uh, been able, we see a society that has normalized civic behavior and that has built institutions of public trust to the point where parents will actually uh, trust in their children's safety um, uh, when they are out and about. And you see that repeated not only in the fact that children travel, but in the fact that uh, they have this amazing lost and found system where almost um, uh, 90% of the cash um, that is lost every year in a city like uh, Tokyo eventually is returned to um, uh, whoever lost it. And this is, I'm talking about millions and millions and millions of US dollars that is lost, that is found, and that is returned to the proper owners. And I found this myself, uh, having lost my wallet within one week of arriving in Tokyo and actually retrieving it the very next day where it had been returned by some good Samaritan in a police station. So there really is this, um, uh, uh, there's a sort of uh, uh, a culturization that happens um, at schools and in families from a very young age uh, of public consciousness of not just acting as an individual but acting as part of a civic whole and I think it goes a long way in explaining some of these wonders (laughs) at least wonders from an Indian point of view. You of course were not the first Indian to travel and live in Japan. I have talked about Tagore and Ras Bihari Bose. I would also ask you about the, the never-ending connection that we have with Japan because of Netaji Subhash Chandra Bose. Can you please uh, run us through you know, about your experiences um, as far as these recollections of Indians who traveled in, in Japan? And uh, how did you discover them? And what is the extent that the Japanese people remember these figures? Right. So I'm certainly not one of the only or first Indians who has extensively traveled in Japan. There's a very, very long history of this. Um, In fact, as far as I could discover, the oldest document Indian resident in Japan was Bodhi Sena, who uh, was a monk from Madurai. And he had a really outsized impact on Japanese culture. Um, uh, he, he, in Japan, he is known as Bodhai Sena. And he was born in the early 8th century. And I think that his life and journeys exemplified in many ways the multidirectional flows of Buddhist influence, you know, and the complex ways in which they have tied different parts of Asia together from India to China and then further east to Korea and Japan. Um, and uh, so actually uh, Bodhai Sena or Bodhi Sena, he actually left um, Madurai and traveled to um, China in Wutai uh, to pay obeisance to what he believed uh, was the Bodhisattva of wisdom, Manjushri, who he thought resided over there. And when he was in China, he met with the Japanese ambassador to the Tang Chinese court, who persuaded him to uh, carry on to Japan. Um, And so Bodhisena voyaged to Japan via Cambodia, via Vietnam, and eventually docked in Osaka around 736 AD and eventually made his way to Nara, uh, which at a time when Buddhism uh, was becoming firmly um, established in Japan. So, um, I, you know, the, he taught um, Sanskrit. He helped establish the Kegon School of Buddhism, uh, which was a variant of the Chinese Huayan School and was very influential um, in uh, establishing Buddhism more deeply um, in Japan. Uh, and so the Buddhist connection is obviously the most ancient and in some ways 
the most deep civilizational connect that we have uh, because you see it even today um, you know in the pantheon of uh, Buddhist um, for example guardian deities that you will see at the front of Japanese temples they often actually have ancient Hindu roots and you will see um, devas uh, what they call ten like Shiva who's called uh, Daiji Zai ten or Brahma who's called Bon ten or Indra who's called Taishaku ten Varuna who's called Raijin you see these figures in uh, Buddhist temples till today because these were part of the Hindu Buddhist pantheon which got absorbed into Japanese Buddhism. But then, of course, we have both the pre-Second um, World War and post-Second World War connections, the more modern connections as well. And, um, you know, the one that I detail, um, there's two that I detail um, um, in the book, one, uh, three actually, come to think of it. One is uh, Rush Bihari Bose, uh, who was a fugitive from British exactly. colonial one justice. Of the early, earliest Indian revolutionaries. Exactly, in India. And uh, I think he was involved in some kind of bomb plot against Harding, who was British Governor General. And so he fled uh, to um, Japan, uh, pretending to be a relative of Rabindranath Tagore, who was due to make his first visit to Japan in um, 1916. And he ended up uh, settling in Japan for the rest of his life and sort of conducted all his revolutionary anti-colonial activities out of um, uh, Tokyo for, for the rest of his life, but he married a Japanese lady. Um, he ended up uh, settling down with a family um, uh, of uh, Japanese bakers who were Naka, Nakamuraya, they were called, and they were actually famous for a bakery in Tokyo. Um, and apart from being a famous uh, Indian revolutionary who did a lot for the cause of Indian independence in Japan, he's also known for introducing authentic Indian curry. Let me stop you here and and introduce the listeners to Kari Raisu. I hope I yes. pronounced the... Okay, so please go ahead and introduce the Kari Raisu. So Kari Raisu is interesting because uh, when you go to Japan and you ask people what is their favorite Japanese food, um, you know, uh, it, they might say something like soba or sushi, but they might also say curry rice because curry rice is an extremely standard staple in the tiffin boxes of Japanese children. So the Navy, for example, in Japan has curry rice every Friday in the naval canteen. And, uh, you know, for the Japanese, curry rice is as Japanese as, um, you know, uh, sushi is. Uh, this was something that was surprising to me. I hadn't really associated um, curry with the Japanese. The curry itself tastes a little bit different. It is sweeter. It is thicker. It often has honey, sometimes apple sauce. So I did some research into this and discovered that curry rice was actually um, brought to Japan or introduced to Japan by British naval officers. Hence, it's important importance to the naval canteen till today in about the 1880s. And, you know, uh, the, the, the British themselves had a very strange version of curry at the time. If you look at Mrs. Beaton's recipe book from the mid-19th century, you will find all these elements of uh, making curry, thickening curry with wheat and adding the honey and the applesauce. So that's something that the Japanese have preserved until now. However, along comes... Uh, Rashbihari Bose and he encounters this curry rice and he thinks that it's uh, some kind of colonial invention and his introduction of authentic Indian curry was in some ways also part of his anti-colonial efforts to kind of introduce the genuine authentic item and he got rid of the wheat he got rid of the honey and the applesauce. He introduced a lot more spice. Uh, but I have to say that it didn't really take off. I mean, till today, the Japanese curry raisu is much closer to the mid-19th century British variant. And Nakamuraya's curry 
proudly serving authentic uh, Indian curries since the 1920s continues to occupy pride of place in Ginza, which is the main commercial center in Tokyo. And it is uh, very popular indeed, uh, but it remains a kind of niche. Um, but yeah, you have all these really interesting uh, um, figures from monks to revolutionaries to jurists that pop up in this complex and long uh, story of the connections between India and Japan. Um, you have uh, you know any discussion on Japan uh, is is never com- complete you know, unless we also talk about suicide. And in your book, you have referred to this unique problem that Japan faces, and also the the issue of uh, the difficulties the Japanese men face in especially middle class Japanese um, professionals face. You know, working under very difficult circumstances, um, becoming alcohol dependent very often, uh, working very long hours. Uh, can you tell about uh, also about the working class Japanese and their lives that we often don't see? They can be very difficult. Um, and, you know, Japan is one of the only countries in the world that actually has a word, the word being karoshi, which means death by overwork. And there is a large number of people every year who die either at the desk or of heart attacks or hypertension related kind of um, uh, chronic health issues that are linked to working huge amounts of overtime without a break. And I think the work culture is punishing in Japan and ultimately not very productive. Um, You know, people often ask me about um, Japanese women. Because there is in the global imagination this idea that Japanese women suffer under patriarchy. And it is true that if you look at other developed countries, other OECD countries, uh, Japan's rankings for gender empowerment are behind the typical rich country. However, I say in my book, perhaps controversially, that if I were to uh, be allowed to choose uh, whether to be an average Japanese man or an average Japanese woman, I would probably choose to be an average Japanese woman. And the reasons for this refer back to your original question about the kind of difficulties for the average salary man. You know, the, what Japan really suffers. So, so if you look at the Japanese women, first of all, something like 70% of Japanese women women participate in the labor force, which is much higher than the global average. And compare this to India's, which is something like 27, 28%. So there's absolutely no comparison. The problem is that the majority of Japanese women end up doing uh, low-level menial jobs. It's harder for them to climb up and sort of break the glass ceiling. But I think many of the reasons for this have got to do with the culture of work in Japan in general, which I think is very punishing for anybody who is a worker who is in that system and does not allow for any um, life outside of that system of work. So that if you have another role as a parent or as a carer, it is absolutely impossible to manage both since the expectations of the workplace are to remain in office for such punishingly long hours that many times people are not even able to go home at night and end up crashing in the office. And almost all big offices have dormitories that are constructed specifically for workers who miss the last train back home and therefore go to sleep there. So it's not common for workers to just spend night after night after night in the office, catching a few hours of sleep and then getting up and going back to work over there. 
So I think, you know, given that circumstance and also the fact that you basically have to defer to your boss, it's quite a hierarchical culture. There's often heavy drinking involved. So if you go out, get drunk, feel quite ill, come back, you know, it doesn't really lend itself to any kind of family life or any fact, any kind of personal life. Um, um, and as a result, um, you know, at least women, even if they are not being able to reach the highest echelons of the work, they have a life, you know, you can, they leave space to read a book to have a relationship with your children to go out for lunch to look at the flowers which the Japanese are so proud of doing so I mean ultimately I think Japan needs reform in its work culture and it's been shown that working longer hours does not make you more productive the Japanese are not amongst the most productive in the world at all and their economy has been in a kind of uh, stall for decades, uh, for the best part of the 21st century. So if it is going to be able to compete with challengers like China, uh, with challengers even like India, where there's a much greater amount of flexibility and adaptability to fast-changing environments, I think that work culture needs to change. And when we see that work culture change, we will see that it will have uh, beneficial impacts for gender empowerment and generally for the health of people, including, I suspect, the Suicide rate. Now, uh, yeah, the beauty of your book is, of course, uh, the fact that it's very well written. Um, I would say you. you've got a style of your own, and uh, you are, you are, I'm sure that you already know that you are known for your prose. Um, but um, I would um, also like to ask you um, uh, this unique thing that you have observed uh, in Japan um, about the ceramic repairing. Uh, yes, repairing yeah. Can you please elaborate on it and, and tell our, our listeners about how the Japanese go about it? It's all about uh, making a, a broken thing appear beautiful, right? That's absolutely right. You know, um, the idea of kintsugi is that when you end up uh, breaking an object, um, usually it's a ceramic object, uh, when you repair it, you have two ways of repairing it. One is to try to repair it perfectly to pretend that it was never broken and hide its scars. The other is to actually repair it by filling in the cracks as the Japanese do with a kind of gold powder and lacquer, which highlights the cracks but in some ways adds something to that repaired object and makes it even more beautiful than it already was. And I suppose the idea is that it inscribes the um, the biography of that object onto the body of the object and says that there's nothing to be ashamed of, that ultimately we are all cracked. We have all suffered a, a, a kind of breakage at some point in our lives, but it is our scars that actually make us more beautiful, that show us as survivors. And so there's a gorgeous philosophy that is, is in some ways inscribed into this very, what can seem like a banal technique of ceramic repair, but to me uh, was one of the most uh, beautiful and illuminating uh, philosophies to come out of Japanese aesthetics. Um, so yes, I do write about this um, uh, quite extensively in the second chapter of the book, which I call Breaking and Healing. Yeah, and they also use gold, if I remember it correctly. Yes, it's gold powder usually. That is what sort of enhances its value and sort of adds an aestheticism to it. So rather than denying um, the scar, it makes the scar more beautiful. Well, you also saw the pandemic in Japan. Yes. And how did the Japanese deal with it? 
So the pandemic was interesting. Um, you know, in many ways, uh, if there was a country that was built to withstand a pandemic, I would say it is Japan, because things like wearing masks and social distancing, you know, long before they became common practices around the world, were already Japan's superpower. Uh, I remember seeing people wearing masks uh, at the moment I arrived, in, you know, when the moment I sat in an aeroplane from Jakarta to Tokyo in 2016, when I was moving there, all the Japanese people in the aeroplane were wearing masks. And I remember thinking that, why were they doing that? It just seemed such an odd thing to do. Uh, my children uh, went to a school where every time anybody had the slightest cold, the kids would come to school wearing a mask. The idea was not to infect other people. It's an idea that we are all very familiar with now, but that had a long history in Japan, going back to the 1920s, when there was, uh, first there was the Spanish flu, of course, uh, global influenza epidemic. Then there was a huge uh, earthquake uh, called the Great Kanto Earthquake, which led to massive fires. So there was a lot of smoke inhalation. And from there, there became seasonal allergies and a variety of different reasons. But the Japanese have long been habituated to mask wearing. They have, or they are also a very quiet culture. So for example, there's no shouting, there's no screaming. People are discouraged strongly from speaking at all on public transport. I remember going into the Japanese metro, again, many years before the pandemic and thinking this was rushed hour, you know, bodies were jam-packed, uh, uh, but it was pin-drop silence. Nobody speaking on their mobile phones, nobody speaking to each other, and the majority of people masked. Um, so, you know, a lot of this kind of behavior that we have had to learn post-COVID was behavior that was already internalized in Japan. So in that sense, they managed it quite well. What was also unique about Japan I discovered that was when emergency measures were finally actually implemented. Um, they were uh, it was a voluntary emergency, which seemed like an oxymoron in most parts of the world. When you have an emergency, the state is invoking its coercive powers to force citizens to either stay at home or or um, not step outside the house. But in Japan, they have a constitution which enshrines civil liberties to the point where the state is actually not allowed to use any coercive measures against people who would uh, uh, circumvent um, the, the the emergency measures. The worst that the state could do is, for example, name and shame businesses that were not complying with the rules. But the rules were actually just strong suggestions uh, because that is how the Japanese constitution is constructed. And what blew me away was despite it being essentially voluntary, there were no fines for people who stepped out of the house when they were not um, allowed to step out of the house. There were certainly no scenes like we saw in India of policemen with lathis beating people or making them, you know, do uh, murgi or <laughs> those kinds of things. But still, by and large, people complied. So it it uh, relied on a general culture of compliance, which is again one of Japan's superpowers. So in many ways, the pandemic and the response to the pandemic really played to Japan's strengths. And despite the fact that in the initial stages of the of the pandemic, there was a certain amount of bungling that took place. There was a big cruise ship called the diamond princess that was parked out um, in the port of Yokohama and that ended up being the source that spread um, um, the, the virus in Japan initially and the handling of that was not uh, was basically bungled um, and also I think the second problem that Japan has is that it is very risk averse so it was very slow compared to other countries and for example the rollout of the vaccine and so on and so forth but the general culture of compliance the habit of mask wearing and of social distancing I think has 
really stood it in good stead. And to the point where we saw, as you mentioned at the beginning, the fact that it was able to host the Olympic Games, um, even in the middle of this global pandemic. Absolutely. So, uh, Pallavi Ayer, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, for the listeners of the Hindus in Books podcast, I would say Pallavi Ayer, orienting an Indian in Japan is a must read and it will um, get it in your nearest bookshops in India uh, and as well as abroad, um, especially in the airports, which I'm sure Pallavi uh, travels when, while traveling, she will also be able to see those books. So Pallavi, thank you so much once again. Thank you, Kalol. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Hindu on Books. You can now find The Hindu's podcasts such as In Focus and Parley on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other major platforms. Write to us with comments and feedback at SOCMED4, S-O-C-M-E-D-4 at the rate thehindu.co.in. 